CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is returning to London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June 2022. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence, and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by CBS Reality UK, expert-led true crime. I'm delighted to say that I will be there and I would love to see you there too. Remember to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount. This year is set to be even bigger and better and not only will you be able to take deep dives into cases and hang out with all your favorite personalities from the true crime world, there will be live podcast recordings and podcast host panel discussions and Q&A sessions. And after all that, you can join us at the bar. Limited early bird tickets are on sale now and don't forget that code MENSREA to get your discount. For more information, visit crimecom.co.uk. See you there. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast. And this is the story of Rose Farrelly. the 15th of February 1993, at a quarter to twelve in the morning, 57-year-old Rose Farrelly was found slumped uncomfortably in a chair in her living room. She lived on her own in her house in O'Hara Avenue in Harold's Cross, just over the canal on the south side of Dublin City. Rose was found by a local home help worker, Mary Fitzgerald, who called to take care of Rose in her own home due to her lack of mobility. Rose had had a stroke in the years before and used a walking stick to get around. Ms Fitzgerald, who considered herself a friend and neighbour in addition to her home help work, spoke to the Evening Herald and said that Ms Farrelly spent most of her days walking from one church to another to attend Mass. Rose was deeply religious and also prayed regularly at a grotto or religious statue near to her home. When Mary entered the living room that morning, she had immediately seen horrific injuries to Rose's face and neck. Rose was dead. Mary Fitzgerald called for an ambulance and for the guardie, and both were on the scene in minutes. Quickly, forensic officers were brought in. The house had been gone through and was in a state of disarray. There was a broken window in the back of the house, and initially, guardie thought Rose's attacker had gained entry somehow that way. This was later ruled out, but there was no other sign of forced entry to the house. Gardy believed that Rose had been killed in the course of a burglary, though it was unknown if anything had been taken from the house in the initial stages of the investigation. There had been two other robberies carried out at the nearby Harold's Cross cottages over Sunday night and Monday morning, and Gardy began to look into whether there might have been any link between Rose's death and those home invasions. There had also been a serious attack on an elderly woman in Temple Ogue over the weekend, 
and there had been a series of aggravated burglaries beginning in October of 1992, which occurred in Donnybrook, Rathmines, Ranala and the Sundrive Road area. Dr John Harbison carried out a post-mortem on Rose's body. He concluded that she had died of serious injuries to her face and neck, as well as of asphyxiation. The woman had also suffered a ruptured liver. Testing was underway to determine if she had been strangled. Dr Harbison told Gardi that it did not seem that a weapon had been used in the attack. Gardi from Terranure and Rathmines began conducting door-to-door inquiries, eventually knocking on 500 doors in the days after Rose's killing. Officers handed out questionnaires to try and determine who had been in the area that weekend and if anything of importance might have been seen. They appealed for a man who had been seen at the front door of Miss Farrelly's house between 11pm and midnight on Valentine's night to come forward so that he could be excluded from their inquiries. A young couple had also been seen in O'Hara Avenue at around the same time and they too were asked to make contact with Gardee. By February 18th, Paul O'Neill, reporting for the Irish Times, outlined that Gardee had discovered that the lock on Ms. Farrelly's front door was in fact faulty. Police believed that this was most likely the point of entry for the person who had attacked Rose. There was a possibility that the back door had been unlocked, but Gardee did not think that this had been how the intruder had got in. Gardee had also said that Rose's walking stick, which she relied on to get around, had not been found in her home and had not yet been located by Gardee. Investigators appealed once again for the man and the couple to come forward to Gardee, as well as anyone who had noted anything suspicious in the O'Hara Avenue area from Sunday evening until Monday morning. The young couple came forward shortly after this and the Evening Herald said that they were interviewed to flesh out a description of the man who had been seen at Rose's house that night. Meanwhile, Rose's funeral took place that day too and she was laid to rest at Mount Jerome Cemetery, not far from her home. Days later, on Saturday the 20th of February 1993, a 19-year-old man was arrested by Gardie from Rath Mines in his home at St. Teresa's Gardens. He was arrested on a matter unrelated to the investigation into Rose Farrelly's death. However, Gardie were preparing a file for the DPP regarding this man in the Rose Farrelly investigation. The man, unnamed at the time, was questioned in relation to Rose Farrelly's murder and was then held on remand in relation to the matter for which he was arrested. By early March, further details of the results of Dr. Harbison's post-mortem were made public in the Irish Times by Garda sources. It was confirmed that asphyxiation had contributed to Miss Farrelly's cause of death, in addition to other serious injuries sustained to her face and neck. More disturbingly, it was revealed that the 57-year-old had been sexually assaulted in the course of the attack. Then, on Monday the 26th of April, 19-year-old Mark Lawler appeared at a special sitting of the Dublin District Court and was charged with Rose Farrelly's murder. He was remanded in custody. Mark Lawler's trial took place in February of the following year. The case opened before Mr Justice Paul Carney and a jury of five women and seven men on Thursday the 3rd of February 1994. Lawler pleaded not guilty to the murder of Rose Farrelly as well as charges of sexually assaulting her, gross bodily harm and the theft of a wedding band. 
Lawler did admit guilt for the unlawful entering of a building at 13 Harold's Cross Cottages on the same date as Rose's death, but also denied a similar charge in relation to the neighbouring house, number 14. Edward Cummins, senior counsel, was prosecuting on behalf of the state and he gave his opening statement that day. Mr. Cummin told the jury that it was the state's case that Mark Lawler had entered Rose Farrelly's home late on the 14th of February. He attacked her, sexually assaulted her, robbed her and then propped her in a chair. The deeply religious and generous woman had died of a combination of strangulation and suffocation. In relation to the theft charge, it was alleged that Lawler had cut and forcibly removed a gold ring from Ms. Farrelly's finger while shouting abuse at her during the attack. The prosecutor also said that the jury would hear from people who would say they had been with the defendant on that night and that they had been asked to keep watch for Mark Lawler. One of these witnesses would say he had entered Ms. Farrelly's home with the defendant and had heard the assault take place. However, Mr. Cummin warned the jury that they would have to treat the evidence given by those witnesses with care given the circumstances. That day, the court heard from Ms. Mary Fitzgerald, who explained that she worked for the Eastern Health Board as home help. Her job entailed calling into elderly or ill people's homes to help with housework, personal care and providing meals for them. Ms. Fitzgerald had worked as home help for Rose Farrelly since August of 1992 and had called to Ms. Farrelly's house once a day during the week to help her. On top of that, Mary said that as a friend and neighbour, she called into Rose's home at the weekends too and brought meals over for her. Ms Fitzgerald told the court that she had seen Rose on Sunday the 14th of February just before noon as the deceased had made her way to Mass and she'd then seen Rose again at around 2pm when she dropped a meal into Ms Farrelly's home. On Monday the 15th, Mary went to make her regular call to Ms. Farrelly's home and arrived again around noon. The house was dark and all the curtains were drawn, which immediately indicated that something was wrong. When Miss Fitzgerald went into the house, she found Rose lying sideways in an armchair in her sitting room. Mary described having gone over to Rose to try and rouse the woman. Struggling to maintain her composure, Ms. Fitzgerald told the court, quote, I went over to her, I felt her little arm, I said Rose, and I ran out of the house. The witness also testified that Rose never kept money in the house and that she was very security conscious. Rose often used the safety chain that was on her front door. On cross examination, Ms. Fitzgerald was asked whether Rose was wearing a caliper or brace on her leg in the days before her death. Ms. Fitzgerald says that she was sure that the woman was not. After Ms. Fitzgerald left the stand, Ms. Maura Fellows was called. She and another woman had been to a vigil mass with Rose Farrelly on the evening of the 14th of February, and Ms. Fellows had walked Rose home that night. The witness had seen Rose turn her key in the door and enter the house while saying goodbye to her. That was sometime between a quarter past eight and half past eight. The following day, Garda Fergal Keane outlined how he and a colleague had gone to Rose Farrelly's home on the 15th of February at about half past twelve. On observing the scene, Garda Keane said he believed that a burglary had taken place there. He inspected the back door of the house, which had a bolt that was open. A mortise lock was also unlocked. The catches on the window in the room where Rose had been found were also open and this window could have been opened further from either inside or outside of the house. 
Then, the evidence from state pathologist Dr. John Harbison began. Harbison had gone to Rose Farrelly's home on the 15th of February, and after his initial examination of Ms. Farrelly's body, he'd put the time of her death as sometime between 9pm the previous night and 10am that day. That evening, he'd carried out the post-mortem, during which he noted a two-centimetre cut on the inner surface of Rose's ring finger, which Harbison said could have resulted from the forcible removal of a ring from her hand. The wound was not one he felt he could describe as a defensive injury, and had been made with a sharp instrument like a blade. It was possible that this injury had occurred after Rose's death. Harbison had also noted bruising on Rose Farley's neck, as well as fractures to her larynx. He had recorded that Rose's neck had been broken because of a fracture that he found in one of the vertebrae there. Dr. Harbison said that this injury was likely caused by Rose having her head forced backwards and had happened while she was alive, though it had not played a central role in her cause of death. It would have resulted in sending her body into shock. Abrasions on Rose Farrelly's neck were determined by the pathologist to be too large to have been caused by manual strangulation and may have been caused by what he called a rigid structure. Harbison had also noted a patterned bruising over Ms. Farrelly's face, which could have been an indication that a piece of cloth was used in the course of smothering. There was also pinpoint hemorrhaging on Ms. Farrelly's inner eyelids, which were commonly associated with asphyxia. John Harbison told the court that Rose Farrelly was basically unable to defend herself due to her physical condition. She was partly paralysed on her left-hand side, and her left hand itself was, quote, deformed as a result of the stroke she had suffered years before. The chief state pathologist concluded that Rose Farrelly had died from a combination of smothering due to pressure applied over her mouth and strangulation. Dr. Harbison's evidence continued when court resumed on Monday the 7th of February, the third day of the trial. Paddy McEntee, senior counsel acting as defence for Lawler, cross-examined the pathologist, who gave further details from Ms. Farrelly's post-mortem. Dr. Harbison said that the patterned bruising noted on Rose Farrelly's face was consistent with a knitted glove being placed over her nose and mouth. The blood observed on Rose Farrelly's face had come from a cut to her lip and possibly also from bleeding from her nose. The pattern of bleeding was consistent with her having been slumped in a chair at the time. There was nothing to indicate that her body had been moved at the time of her death or before rigor mortis had set in. Harbison said it was his opinion that the pressure on Ms. Farrelly's nose and mouth had caused her head to be pushed backwards, injuring her neck. He didn't think that the bruising on Rose's neck had been caused by something like the strap of a handbag. After this, Rose Farrelly's sister, Molly, took to the stand. Molly was a nun in the presentation order and was the eldest of the three girls in their family. Their other sister was married and lived in the UK. The house on O'Hara Avenue in Harold's Cross had been the family home. Molly and Rose had been close, though they hadn't seen much of each other in the year before Rose's death, as Molly had been in England completing training courses, but she had returned a few months before Rose had died. Sister Molly explains that Rose had had her stroke in 1982 and had spent the best part of a year in hospital afterwards. Rose had been told by doctors that she might never walk again, but Molly said her sister was very determined and that after a short time using a wheelchair, 
Rose had begun using a leg brace and was able to walk again. Eventually, she moved on to using a walking stick and stopped using the leg brace altogether in 1991. Sister Molly said that by her death, Rose didn't even really need to use the walking stick anymore. Rose had been very religious and also very generous, and Sister Molly told the court a story about how Rose had once taken £10 from her savings account in the post office to go and buy a blouse for herself. But on the way to the shop, she'd seen a woman with a baby standing outside Whitefriars Street Church and gave the money to her instead. According to the nun, Rose was actually more religious than even her, and in light of her physical condition after her stroke, Rose had once told her sister that there were only two things that she could do with her life now, and those things were going to Mass and helping the poor. In fact, Rose tended to give her money away to such an extent that her family gave her a small daily allowance. Her pension book was kept by her home help, Miss Fitzgerald, who would collect it for her at the local post office. Molly Farrelly testified that the only jewellery that Rose had was their mother's wedding ring, which she always wore on her right hand. She said that Rose was security conscious and recently had not allowed the bolt on the front door to be removed at someone else's suggestion. But Sister Farrelly also admitted that she feared that Rose was not careful enough in keeping doors locked and was too trusting. After Rose's death, Molly had noted that there was a picture missing from the house of their mother and another of Rose with their niece. Molly told the court that she had been shown torn paper by Gardie and realised that these pieces were the missing photographs. Around the same time, Sister Molly had also noted that the armchair in the sitting room was in the middle of the floor and in front of the gas fire. Molly maintained that this was not how her sister had furniture arranged. The chair should have been off to the side of the room and next to the fire, rather than right in front of it. This episode is sponsored in part by our best buds, Manscaped. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use the code MENS for 20% off and free shipping. It's New Year, New Me time with the global leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped are here to save your balls this year and make the ball drop into 2022 the tidiest and sexiest ever. This year, take your package to the next level with their Performance Package 4.0 and their brand new Ultra Premium Body Wash. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is designed to trim hair on loose skin and has advanced skin-safe technology and comes equipped with a spotlight that'll shine a light to the promised land. You also get Manscaped's Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver to banish bad vibes and bad smells from your nethers and guarantee a confidence boost in the new year. And don't forget those free gifts Manscaped send to the shed travel bag and a pair of their boxers. And Manscaped have also introduced their new Ultra Premium Body Wash, 
This body wash smells great and is cologne infused with aloe vera and sea salt to keep your skin feeling clean, nice and moisturized. Cheers to new balls in 2022. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code MENS. It's New Year, nice pubes in 2022 with Manscaped. This episode is also sponsored in part by the amazing Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service for women and men that takes the hard work out of dressing well. It's a fun way to find clothes that suit you, your price preferences, and your life. I hate shopping. I have sat in clothing racks as a child, cried upon entering the mall as a teen, and abandoned college friends searching for the perfect tan trousers for a bench. I mean, I like clothes, especially new clothes and clothes that make me feel good, but I hate the whole process. Dressing rooms are terrible, trying to find what you want in your size is a pain, and of course, you have to do all of that not in your house. Enter Stitch Fix. Using Stitch Fix starts with a quiz. Head to stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea to get started. And listen, who doesn't love a quiz? They get an idea of your style, your budget, what sizes you are. Then a personal shopper goes and finds clothes for you and they're delivered to your door. You try every item on in the comfort of your own home, in normal lighting no less, and you can send back anything that you don't love. When you use Stitch Fix, you pay a styling fee of £10, and that tenor is deducted from the cost of the clothes you decide to keep. If you keep all five items they send, you get 20% off. And Stitch Fix is super flexible. There's no subscription required. You just schedule your box whenever you want, and delivery and returns are easy and free. With Stitch Fix, everything is selected with you in mind, making great style effortless. And the service is for both men and women. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea. That's M-E-N-S-R-E-A. stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea. Once again, that's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash mensrea. The next day, Tuesday the 8th of February, the fourth day of the trial, the court heard from Detective William Brennan. He described his collection of evidence from the scene in Harold's Cross. The rooms in Miss Farley's house had been ransacked, including those upstairs. He had found a hank of human hair on the carpet in the kitchen area, near to the back door. He had also collected a pair of thick black tights and a rug from the room where Rose had been found. Further, the witness had collected a number of biological samples from Rose Farrelly's home, including from her clothing, and he'd handed these over for forensic examination. Detective Garda Brennan had observed the wound that Rose had suffered to her right hand and said that it was his belief that it had been caused with a sharp blade, possibly something like a Stanley knife. The hair he found had also been cut, again with a sharp blade. The detective found nothing in the house that was capable of making cuts such as these. Detective Brennan said he had also examined the front door of Rose's house and said that the lock on the front door was damaged. On cross-examination by Paddy McEntee, Garda Brennan said that this damage meant that a strong push to the door or putting a shoulder to it would have opened it. Then Mr Stephen Wilson appeared before the court to give evidence. He was a barman at the Irish House pub, which was just minutes from Rose's home around the corner and facing onto the canal. 
He had worked there Valentine's night and after finishing up at a quarter past midnight, he had the job of locking up the car park, an open space behind the building and bordered by terraced homes on the adjoining streets. As he was doing this, Stephen Wilson noticed that number 13 Harold's Cross Cottages appeared to have been broken into. The side entrance, which faced into the car park, was open, and he could see that the back window was both broken and open. The witness and a friend had decided to go into the house to make sure that everything was okay and entered through the smashed window into a bedroom. Mr. Wilson said he had seen a footprint on the duvet in the room and then he and his colleague had checked the house. They locked the bedroom door on their way out to prevent access to the house beyond should anyone else decide to enter into the bedroom that night. When Wilson returned out to the car park, he leaned against a wall and looked out across the space behind the buildings, which was essentially looking into the back of the terrace of houses that were on O'Hara Avenue. While doing this, Stephen Wilson told the court that he saw a man looking out of one of the windows of a house, and this was a man he recognised as having been in the bar earlier that night. Stephen Wilson said he had noticed this man in the pub as he wasn't a regular. He was stocky with red hair cut tight and short and was wearing glasses. Wilson added that the man had been drinking pints of Smithicks and had been in the pub for at least an hour. The witness recalled that he'd later been asked by Gardy to attend at Rathbine's Garda station to view an identity parade. Mr. Wilson had picked out a man from the line at the time. He confirmed on cross-examination that the pub had been very busy on the night in question, given the date. Mr. Wilson's evidence was to continue the following day. However, due to a juror becoming ill, court was adjourned, and so he resumed the stand then on Thursday the 10th of February. Paddy McEntee further examined the witness in relation to the identification parade which had taken place in April of 1993. Mr. Wilson said he had a clear recollection of what the man in the pub had looked like, and when he picked a man from the lineup, he had said to Agarda, quote, He looks like the guy. He appears to have put on a bit of weight on his face since, end quote. The witness told the court he had very little memory of what the other men in the lineup had looked like, or if any of the other men had had ginger hair, although he did remember one man who had fair hair worn in a ponytail. The court then heard from Derek Meany, who was the bar manager working in the Irish House pub on the night of Rose Farrelly's death. Mr. Meany also said that he had noticed a young man with red hair in the pub at around 10 o'clock that night. The man had stood out in the witness's memory because he was sweating and had asked for a pint of water. Mr. Meany described the man as in his late 20s or so and said he had on dark green trousers. In court, Derek Meany could not recall if the red-haired man wore glasses. The man had left the pub about 10 minutes after Mr. Meany had noticed him. After the pub closed, Mr. Meany was the other man who had gone into number three Harold's Cross Cottages with the previous witness, Stephen Wilson. Later, Mr. Meany had been interviewed by Gardie and was asked if he had seen a man matching a particular description. Mr. Meany said he had not seen that man, but told the Gardie he remembered the man who was wearing green trousers. Another witness, David Dunn, said he had seen a young couple at around 11pm on the night of Rose's death outside of 13 Harold's Cross Cottages. Mr. Dunn said he had seen these teenagers speak to another man. Later, the male in the couple had disappeared around the back of number 13, while the girl remained out in front. 
the witness said it seemed at the time that the girl was keeping a lookout. A few minutes later, the teens had run off together, towards Harold's Cross Road. When he went to leave the area, David recalled that the back door to number 13 was wide open and a window was broken. Another witness who had been in the Harold's Cross area that night, Geraldine McCabe, told the court that she and her husband were driving down O'Hara Avenue at around half eleven. They saw a man standing on the path outside number three, Rose's house. The man was looking up at the house. Ms McCabe recalled that he was of average build, wearing a light-coloured coat. Then a second man appeared, walking quickly and looking back at the other man. It was Ms McCabe's impression that the two men were together, though the witness admitted to Patty McEntee that she had no reason to think this and it had just been her impression at the time. The second man Ms McCabe saw she described as being around 17 or 18 years old, with black hair and a square face. He was slim, around 5 foot 7, and had on dark clothes and bulky runners. The following day, the seventh day of the trial, was also filled with testimony from people who had been in the Harold's Cross and O'Hara Avenue area on the night of the 14th of February. Christopher Coyle was in the car park at the back of the Irish House pub and he had seen a silhouette or shadow in the window of one of the houses on O'Hara Avenue that backed onto the open space. Later, he'd pointed the house out to Gardee. It was number three O'Hara Avenue. Mr. Coyle also recalled that while he was working in the bar earlier that night, he had served a man he had not seen before, around four times. The man was in his mid-twenties, Mr. Coyle said. He had on blue jeans. Mr. Coyle couldn't remember what colour his hair was. The man was on his own at the bar, but did stop to speak with another man who was in his fifties or so, who was tall with greyish hair. Brenda May gave evidence next and said that she lived in Grove Road, not far from O'Hara Avenue. At around a quarter past eleven on the night in question, she had been upstairs in bed, reading. She had heard a sound she described as like wood crashing and then glass smashing. Ms May had gotten up and looked out her window. She'd seen two men and a girl at the end of the lane which faced into the Irish House car park and all three were turned towards the wall at Harold's Cross Cottages. Ms May recalled that the girl appeared to have curly blonde hair. A few minutes later, Ms May was back in bed and at around half past eleven, she heard three screams. The witness told the court that to her, it sounded like an older woman and these screams were, quote, more serious than a normal scream. End quote. Catherine Shannon had been on O'Hara Avenue that night and at around half eleven she'd seen a man at Rose Farrelly's door. She said the man was crouched over but had straightened up as she approached and began walking back towards the gate and onto the path. Ms Shannon had testified that this man was in his mid-twenties, between five foot seven and five foot nine, was well built and had tidy looking sandy blonde hair he had on a green jacket. The last witness for that day was Sharon White. She had seen a man standing in Rose's front garden, sometime after a quarter past eleven. Again, this witness described the man as in his mid-twenties and about five-nine. Ms White said he was clean-shaven, had thick, dark hair and was wearing a light blue jacket with his hands in its pockets. On Monday the 14th of February, a year on since Rose Farrelly's killing, the trial of the man accused of her murder started late, with hearings beginning only in the afternoon. The delay had been caused by legal argument, which had taken place in the absence of the jury. 
Then, at 20 past three, 19-year-old Mark Hawkins was called to the stand. He was there to recount for the court what he had seen and done on the night of the 14th of February the year before. Mr. Hawkins testified that he had been out with a girl that night. They'd met up at about half past eight. They'd hung around with a group for about an hour, and then the girl went home for a short period before returning. At 10 o'clock or so, it began to rain, and the witness recalled that he and the girl had sat on a step just past the entrance to the car park at the Irish House pub. The two sat there and chatted for about 20 minutes. After a while, they had been approached by a man who had come from the direction of the Irish House car park entrance. This man was in his early 20s. He was 5'7 or 5'8 and had tightly cut red hair, which was short on the sides but longer at the top. Hawkins said the man was well-built, wearing blue jeans, dark shoes or runners, and he had on a stonewashed denim shirt. He had a light moustache and was wearing glasses with lenses that were big. Hawkins said that this man had told him his name, which he thought was Paul Lawler. This man, this Paul Lawler, had asked the witness if he knew anyone living in number 13 Harold's Cross Cottages. When Mr. Hawkins said no, Lawler said he was going to break in and asked if Hawkins would keep sketch, that is, to keep a lookout for him. There was a fiver in it for him, if he would, and so Hawkins agreed. Then, this red-haired man, Lawler, went back into the car park and returned with a long jacket which was all different colours. A black car parked outside the house and the red-haired man came and went a bit before walking towards the back of number 13, opening the gate and going in. After a few minutes, the red-haired man came back and said something about bars on the window. A short while later, the witness heard glass smashing. Then Lawler asked Hawkins to stand at the back of number 13 and the girl to stand at the hall door. Both agreed, but after a while, the girl said she had to go home and walked away. Hawkins recalled that he had run after the girl and caught up with her at the canal, and they spoke for a few seconds. The girl went home, and Hawkins testified that he had returned to the Irish House pub car park. He met Lawler at the side entrance to the pub. Hawkins testified that he and this Lawler fellow had then walked together towards the bridge at the canal, and that Lawler had handed him a five-pound note from a black wallet after saying he'd got nothing from the house. The witness had then turned around and began walking towards his home, but as he crossed the road at Harold's Cross Cottages, the man had called out to him and so he walked back. The two continued walking, passing by a man standing at the entrance to one of the cottages who had bid them a good night. Hawkins and Lawler then turned into O'Hara Avenue and they stopped outside numbers three and four and began talking while standing outside. Lawler had knocked on the front door of number three but got no response and he'd crouched down and looked through the letterbox. Mark Hawkins' evidence continued the following day, the ninth day of the trial. He and the man he believed was called Paul Lawler, the red-haired man, had entered number three O'Hara Avenue after Lawler had forced the door. The 19-year-old said that this other man had gone upstairs in the house and was there for five or ten minutes before coming back down and telling the witness to go into a room off the hallway. Hawkins said he had done what he was told. While in that room, Mark Hawkins told the court that he had heard a shout and a person saying, Get out! What are you doing here? Then there were bangs, which Hawkins described as impact noises. 
Hawkins had gone into the hall and through another doorway where he saw Lawler and the body of a woman on the floor. The witness told the court, quote, I asked him what he was after doing. He said she started talking and shouting, so he had to hit her a few times to keep quiet. I just stood there and started to cry, end quote. Then, according to Hawkins, the other man had asked him to help turn the body on the ground over onto her back. Hawkins did this and retreated back to the doorway where he watched as Lawler pulled at the woman's clothing. The man had then undone his trousers and lay on top of the woman before eventually getting up. Then, as this red-haired man began trying to fix her clothing, he also began hitting her, kicking her and yelling abuse at her. Mr. Hawkins said he believed there were five or six blows landed. The witness told the court that he had not seen the woman who was lying on the floor move at all from the time he had entered the room. After this, Mark Hawkins recalled that Lawler had left the room for a short period and returned with a collection of things, photographs, pictures, a handbag and a blanket. Lawler had ripped up the photo and papers and dropped them on the floor. He then lifted the woman up, put one of the straps of a handbag around her neck and pulled it tight. Lawler was facing him while doing this, as he stood in the doorway crying, and, according to Hawkins, this had gone on for five to seven minutes. Lawler had then allegedly picked up an object, which the witness realised was a knife, and had bent over the woman. The court was told Hawkins couldn't see what Lawler was doing. The defendant then had Hawkins help him to move Ms. Farrelly onto a chair. The 19-year-old testified that her head was lolling back. She didn't move, and then Lawler covered her with a blanket. Mr. Hawkins remembered that there was an injury to the woman's head and blood was coming from her forehead. The men left then when Lawler decided it was time, and Hawkins said that as they walked out the front door, the red-haired man had picked up a walking stick and showed him a gold ring, which had blood on it. The two had walked together to the Irish House pub and then Lawler had asked Hawkins to meet him there again the next night, but although Hawkins had agreed at the time, he testified that he had not followed through with the plan. Then Mark Hawkins' cross-examination by Paddy McEntee began. Mr McEntee read a letter to the witness and to the court, dated in the June previous, from the chief state solicitor. This letter said that on the direction of the DPP, Mark Hawkins would not be prosecuted for any of his actions taken on the night of the 14th to 15th of February. He would have this immunity because he was an essential witness against the defendant in the case. McEntee then asked Hawkins a number of questions regarding the content of the letter. Mr Hawkins insisted that he had not really understood the details of his immunity from prosecution until on the stand that day but said that Agarda had read the letter to him and that his father and solicitor had been notified of the position the year before. The young man said he had not consulted a solicitor in order to secure immunity in the case and did not know if his solicitor had engaged in any negotiation to secure the agreement outlined. On the stand, Hawkins said he had done nothing to contribute to Rose Farrelly's death. He had not found it strange that Lawler, the red-haired man, had asked him to meet again the next day. He acknowledged that he had walked past a Garda station on his way home that night too, and that he had not gone into it. The young man confessed that he had not slept that night, but also said that he had not told his parents about what had happened, despite his anxiety. Mark Hawkins said that he had been extremely scared. 
Hawkins also admitted that he had lied to Gardee in his initial statements and that he and the girl who had been with him had agreed on a story to tell Gardee. The witness had told the girl that he and the red-haired man had only stood outside Rose Farrelly's home and that he hadn't mentioned anything about someone being killed there. In his statement taken on the 17th of February 1993, Hawkins had told Gardee that he had seen a man with a Northern Irish accent in the area and that this had been a lie to try and throw Gardee off. The witness confirmed that he had been arrested on the 20th of February as an accessory to murder, but on the stand, Hawkins said that he hadn't understood what that meant at the time. That day, he had also viewed an identity parade and picked out the defendant. On the 27th of February, Hawkins had returned to Gardee and made a further statement in which he said he was telling the whole truth of what had happened. This was still his assertion on the stand. Mark Hawkins' testimony continued for a third day into Wednesday the 16th of February as Paddy McEntee resumed his cross-examination. The senior counsel spent time that day examining the details of Mark Hawkins' testimony as to what had happened in Rose Farrelly's home resulting in her death. Mr McEntee put it to Mark Hawkins directly that the witness was telling lies about what had happened in Rose Farrelly's home, which Hawkins denied. Asked why it was that he had not gone and gotten help or gone to the Gardaí afterwards, Mark Hawkins said that he had been too frightened and he didn't know what to do, even as he accepted that he had had opportunities to leave that night and had not. McEntee then turned to the issue of gloves worn by Hawkins on the night of Miss Farrelly's killing. The young man said that he had been wearing knitted gloves while he was in 3 O'Hara Avenue and that he had been told by the other man, the defendant, to wear them. Hawkins then strenuously denied having pushed on Rose Farrelly's mouth and nose with his glove-covered hand. The young man said that Lawler had also been wearing gloves that night, black woolly ones. Further, after they had left the house, Hawkins said that Lawler had taken both pairs of gloves and put them in a plastic bag which he then put into his coat pocket. Mark Hawkins had told the court that after the red-haired man's attack on Rose Farrelly, when he had helped the defendant roll her body over, he had noticed something attached to the heel of the woman's shoe and had seen Lawler fiddling with it. The witness said it looked like the shoe had a raised heel. The witness accepted that he'd told Gardy in a statement that he had seen a leg brace on the woman. Mr. McEntee put it to Hawkins that there was evidence that Rose Farrelly no longer wore her leg brace by the time she was killed. Mr. Hawkins' response was simply, quote, Well, I seen it anyway. Paddy McEntee asked the witness if he'd ever seen Ms. Farrelly before, and the young man said that he had, twice at a statue in Harold's Cross. Hawkins said that he had not noticed her wearing a leg brace at that time. He had recognised Rose when he assisted the other man to move her. The 19-year-old had told Gardy that he'd seen Lawler fiddling with a button on Ms. Farrelly's trousers and said that on the stand he was sure that the defendant had opened the woman's trousers, though he was not sure now if a button was involved or not, as the room was dark. Mr. McEntee alleged that this notion of the room being dark was simply an excuse Mr. Hawkins was now making to avoid having to provide details about what he had seen in the room and be potentially caught out in a lie. Hawkins denied that this was the case. Defence counsel also asked Hawkins about the items that he alleged Lawler had brought back into the sitting room after assaulting Ms. Farrelly. 
Hawkins agreed that he had told Gardy that these were a blanket, a bag, a picture of Miss Farley, as well as an oval framed picture. Mr. McEntee suggested that the reason Hawkins was able to recall in detail these items was because he had, in fact, held them in his hand. Again, Mark Hawkins denied that this was the case. Paddy McEntee went on to point out other inconsistencies in Hawkins' statement, like that he had felt paralysed to do anything when he purported to witness Lawler strangle Ms. Farrelly with a strap of a handbag, but he'd also then been able to go help Lawler move Ms. Farrelly's body twice. Hawkins said that the other man had continued to kneel as he grabbed for a blade, and also that he had stood up. And Hawkins had described this implement as both a blade and a knife. On the stand, the witness explained that the words were interchangeable to him. Mr. McEntee told the witness that his client accepted that he and Hawkins had been in contact earlier on the evening of the 14th of February, but that it was his client's instructions that after he, Mark Lawler, had Mark Hawkins stand lookout for him at number 13 Harold's Cross Cottages, they had gone their separate ways. The defendant asserted that the two had never seen each other again after that. Mark Hawkins insisted that he had been with the defendant until after the attack in number 3 O'Hara Avenue, and he'd seen him again when he attended to view an identity parade at the Garda station. The barrister asked if Hawkins had anything to say about the suggestion that he, the witness, had been in Rose Farrelly's house either on his own or with others which did not include his client, and that it was in fact him and these possible others that had carried out the attack on the elderly woman. In response, the witness, Mark Hawkins, said, quote, I've nothing to say, I just know that I'm right, end quote. On Thursday, the 17th of February, the 11th day of the trial, the court heard from Sergeant Jim Costello. He was one of the officers who had interviewed the previous witness, Mark Hawkins, on the 17th of February, 1993. Hawkins had given a statement at the time and had also identified places from that statement, both on a map and by travelling to the locations in a Garda car. After this interview, Sergeant Costello told the court that he had not been satisfied with some of the details of the statement and on foot of that had obtained two search warrants. Hawkins was then arrested on the 20th of February on suspicion of the burglary of Rose Farrelly's home the night of her killing. The then 18-year-old had subsequently made another statement and Sergeant Costello informed the court that Hawkins accepted that the statement he had previously given was incorrect, though the teenager continued to deny any involvement in the burglary. When Paddy McEntee cross-examined the sergeant, he agreed with the statement that Mr. Hawkins had lied in his initial statement to police, but Sergeant Costello said he wouldn't go that far in relation to the statement given on the 20th, Rather, the guard said, Hawkins had concealed certain things. Sergeant Costello stated, quote, I didn't really consider it lying then, and I still don't. He wasn't telling the whole story, end quote. Sergeant Costello had also been present when the defendant, Mark Lawler, had been arrested on the 20th of February at his home in St. Teresa's Gardens. A number of guardie had arrived out to the flat in order to arrest Lawler in relation to burglary at 3 O'Hara Avenue. According to Sergeant Costello, as Mark Lawler was being cautioned, the defendant had called out to his mother saying, quote, Ma, ma, I'm being lifted for murder, end quote. 
Another officer who was present as part of the search of Mark Lawler's home on the 20th of February, Inspector Anthony Brisbane, gave evidence that he had been present when Lawler had been in the identification parade. Mr. McEntee, defending, noted that it was accepted that his client had been identified by Mark Hawkins and a teenage girl. Inspector Brisbane was the one who had informed Lawler that he was being arrested for the murder of Rose Farrelly. In response, the defendant had made a comment to the effect that this was some sort of stitch-up. When Lawler was taken to Rathmine's Garda station and searched, a page of the Sunday World newspaper was found in his jacket pocket. The page was from the 7th of March, 1993, and one of the headlines on it was Cops on Trail of Frail Rose's Brutal Killer. An informal identification parade had then taken place, and Lawler had been identified by Mark Hawkins. The defendant was informed of this and asked to take part in a formal ID parade, to which he'd responded, no way. After this, a 16-year-old girl, who remained unnamed given her age, recalled for the court that she was the one who had been out with Mark Hawkins on Valentine's night the year before. She described a man approaching them and introducing himself as Mark Lawler. This man had then asked them to keep sketch for him for £5. Lawler had gone off and come back quickly after putting on a blue coat and a scarf. He'd then broken into the cottage. The girl said she had gone home at about a quarter past eleven. But the next day, the 16-year-old and a female friend of hers had met Mark Hawkins. The witness said Hawkins had spoken about something having taken place at number three O'Hara Avenue and at another address. Due to this conversation, she and Mark Hawkins had decided to make up a false statement and tell this to Gardee. The girl cried as she said she had done this because she was frightened and she was afraid that Mark Hawkins would get the blame for killing Rose Farrelly. The witness had made her statement to Gardee on the 17th of February and had then been arrested on the 20th of February, after which she made another statement. This, she insisted, was the true version of events. Later that day, she had identified Mark Lawler at an identification parade. The 16-year-old also confirmed that she had been told that she would not be prosecuted in relation to the events of that night. The following day was Friday the 18th of February and the 12th day of the trial. The morning was taken up again with more legal argument in the absence of the jury. When the five women and seven men filed back into the courtroom at two o'clock that afternoon, Mr Justice Carney informed them that there had been a development in relation to a scientific element of the evidence in the case, which had not yet been touched upon in the course of the hearings. It would take some time for the issues that had arisen to be resolved in a manner which would allow the evidence to come before a court, and such a delay mid-trial would be too long of an interruption for a jury trial. Mr Justice Carney said that due to this development, and in the interests of justice, he was taking the decision to discharge the jury. The case would have to be heard again at a later date. The prosecution and the defence had both agreed with this course of action. Justice Carney thanked the jury for their service. The trial was over. This episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Noom. 
it's that time of year again. And listen, I'm not going to talk to you about that thing we're all getting ads for right now. What I am going to talk to you about is changing habits and becoming healthier. Head to noom.com slash to start a trial and see how Noom can help you to achieve your goals. So real talk, I have developed some bad habits in the past 18 months, and I am sad to say that sugar is one of the problems. It's got to go. Due to my ADHD diagnosis and the medication I'm now on, blood pressure is a big deal now. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions. This has got to be a long-term change. So I'm back on Noom. It was so helpful when lockdown started, and I know that the habits I need to change will be supported by the psychology-based approach in its program. I love using Noom because it helps me be mindful of eating. By that, I mean I'm being thoughtful about it. Often, I end up forgetting to eat at all during the day. So it's no wonder that a share-size bag of Maltesers disappears at night. And logging my meals means I am prompted to think before absentmindedly grabbing a sugar-filled snack bar in the mid-afternoon. But Noom's program doesn't ban any food or get all judgmental with you if you have a so-called slip, nor does it ask you to jump on a scale in front of a group of people. Noom is not a flash-in-the-pan, short-sighted program. It's sustainable and helps you to achieve long-term results. It helps you to build the habits you need to get a healthier version of your lifestyle. Noom helps you understand your mind and body to get long-term results. With Noom, taking care of your health is empowering instead of stress-inducing. There's no need to fear ruining the whole program with one off day. And if you're struggling with your health goals, Noom will help you get back on track. If you want help to get healthier, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash mensrea. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash M-E-N-S-R-E-A. Noom.com slash mensrea. This episode is also sponsored in part by the wonderful June's Journey. I adore the mobile game June's Journey. It's been a staple for me for over a year now, and I'm about to hit level 500. It's a hidden object game, and you also decorate a lovely island with beautiful scenery, but it's the story that has me hooked. June Parker is the main character, an amateur sleuth living in the Roaring Twenties. When you start the game, June is trying to solve the mysterious murder of her sister, and the twists keep coming. You'll end up traveling to Paris, India, Cuba, and even Japan, and you'll meet characters from all walks of life that are part of June's adventurous and sometimes dangerous life. New chapters are added each week, and you'll love the beautiful scenes that are the settings for the stories as it unfolds, and finding those hidden objects is so satisfying and calming. I love decorating Orchid Island and unlocking new items, and I also joined a club in the game and started playing the weekly competitions. Not only are the games great, you earn extra prizes. If you, like me, love a good mystery, then put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. If you're ready to awaken your inner detective, join me and over 30 million others who have downloaded June's Journey. Get it for free today on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Mark Lawler found himself in the Central Criminal Courts again on the 3rd of October, 1995. This time, Mr. Justice Gagan was presiding alongside a jury of eight men and four women. But again, Mark Lawler pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder and the charges of sexual assault, theft, and grievous bodily harm. Edward Cummin again gave the opening statement on behalf of the prosecution the following day, Wednesday, outlining that Mark Lawler had been seen attacking, sexually assaulting, and strangling Rose Farrelly in her home on the 14th of February 1993. 
the jury would hear from this witness, who had been involved in the incident but who had been granted immunity from prosecution. Given the circumstances, the jury were again told that they would have to treat this evidence with caution. Mary Fitzgerald, the home help who had discovered Rose Farrelly's lifeless body in her sitting room on Monday the 15th of February, once again testified. The day after this, Dr John Harbison brought the court through his conclusions from the post-mortem of Rose Farrelly's body. He told the court once again that Rose had died from a combination of strangulation and suffocation from pressure applied to her nose and mouth. She would not have been able to defend herself and had sustained 11 injuries to her head as well as the cut to her finger and the broken vertebrae in her neck. The state pathologist's evidence continued into the next day, after which the court heard from Rose Farrelly's sister, Molly, the presentation nun. The trial adjourned then for the weekend, and when it resumed on the 9th of October, neighbours, workers at the Irish House pub, and passers-by who were in and around O'Hara Avenue that night described hearing a commotion and seeing a number of people close to Rose Farrelly's home. That afternoon, the jury was sent out for legal argument. The next morning, on the sixth day of the trial, Mr Justice Gagan spoke to the jury. He said that a number of complex legal issues had arisen, and they had to be dealt with before evidence could resume. The jury would not be required in court before the following Monday at the earliest, and the judge went on to warn that there may be further delays. It's unlikely that Mr Justice Gagan had anticipated the length of the actual delay that ultimately occurred in the trial. After hearing six days of evidence, it would be four weeks before the jury returned to their seats in the courtroom. In the meantime, the court heard lengthy legal argument regarding the admissibility of DNA profiling evidence that was proposed to be heard by the court by the prosecution. This was the first case in Irish legal history where DNA evidence was proposed to be heard. Mark Lawler's legal team questioned the validity of the science of DNA profiling, its reliability and, more specifically, the method of collection, chain of custody and storage conditions of the samples involved in the investigation into Rose Farrelly's killing. Mr Justice Gagan heard evidence regarding all of these issues and examined in detail the handling of the samples in question. Ultimately, Justice Gagan decided that the evidence would be allowed and the trial could continue. But before the introduction of the DNA evidence, a number of days had been set aside to hear evidence from other witnesses. On Thursday the 9th of November, when the trial resumed, Detective Garda William Brennan of the Ballistics Unit was the first witness on the stand. He told the court that he had examined the scene at Rose Farrelly's home on the 15th of February. Garda Brennan had observed that the front door was undamaged, but there was a Yale-type lock that had been forced open some time in the past. This had occurred some considerable time before his examination, he said. The damage was such that a strong push to the door in the lock area or the use of a plastic card would have opened the door. Detective Garda Brennan had found that a front room in the house was locked and so he had picked this lock in order to gain access to it. The detective recalled that when he went inside it was clear that the room had been disturbed. In another room downstairs he had seen the body of a woman in a wood-framed armchair. She was partially covered with a multicoloured blanket and Brennan could see that she was wearing a tracksuit top and bottoms. Detective Garda Brennan confirmed for Paddy McEntee that the house showed signs of having been ransacked. 
On Wednesday, the 15th of November, Mark Hawkins was in the witness box once again. He repeated his previous testimony that he had met a red-haired man who he believed was named Paul Lawler in Harold's Cross on St. Valentine's Day. After keeping lookout for him at Harold's Cross Cottages, they had entered Rose Farrelly's home and there, Mark Hawkins told the court he had witnessed this other man attack and sexually assault the older lady. He then stood by crying as the defendant, Lawler, had allegedly strangled Rose Farrelly with a strap of a handbag and had cut a ring from her finger. Mark Hawkins admitted once again that he had lied to Gardee in his initial statements to him. The following day, Hawkins' evidence continued, where Paddy McEntee again delved into the lies Hawkins had initially told Gardee and the inconsistencies that were present in his various statements. Hawkins agreed that some of the details in his second statement were misleading, but asserted that he was now telling the truth of what had happened that night. On Friday the 17th of November, the court heard from the girl who had been out with the witness Mark Hawkins on the night of Rose Farley's killing. Now over 18, the girl was able to be named. She was Michelle Mackin. Again, Ms. Mackin was quite upset on the stand as she recalled the events of St. Valentine's Night 1993. She confirmed that she had identified Mark Lawler as the red-haired man that she and her boyfriend had met that night. After this, Dr. Louise McKenna, a forensic scientist, outlined that she had found blood and semen stains on the clothing Rose Farrelly had worn on the night of her death. She had also found what was described as a green fibrous clump on Ms. Farrelly's tracksuit bottoms. This was matched to fibres and material of green suede shoes belonging to the defendant, Mark Lawler. The court broke for the weekend then, and when the trial resumed on Monday the 21st of November, further forensic evidence was heard. Dr. Sean McDermott testified that he had determined that a footprint left on a duvet in number 13 Harold's Cross Cottages had been left by a green suede runner which belonged to the defendant. He had examined the pair of runners which had been taken from Mark Lawler's home during Garda searches. When cross-examined by Mr. McEntee, Dr. McDermott agreed that he himself had not taken measurements of the impression left on the quilt or of the shoes nor had he examined other green suede runners. Then, Sergeant Pat Lawton took to the stand and informed the court that he was present at Rathmines Garda Station on the 20th of February 1993 when Mark Lawler agreed for blood and hair samples to be taken. He had also been there when Mr Lawler finally agreed to take part in an identity parade. Six people had viewed this parade, where Lawler appeared alongside 12 other men. The female witness, Michelle Mackin, had picked out Lawler, and so had Mark Hawkins. Both said that the man had asked them to keep sketch for him while he broke into number 13, Harold's Cross Cottages. On Thursday, the 23rd of November, what was accounted as the 37th day of the trial, a forensic scientist from Cellmark Diagnostics Laboratory in the UK took the court through her findings in relation to DNA profiles developed from samples taken at the crime scene. Ms Amanda Reardon told the court that DNA had been extracted from a piece of fabric from Ms Farrelly's jumper, which was determined to have semen stains on it. She had received case notes and lumographs to examine. These lumographs were described in the press as X-rays, but are something that we are far more familiar with today. 
They're the pieces of cellulose with band markings on them, which allow various genetic markers to be compared. Ms. Reardon had lumographs developed from the staining itself, as well as profiles from Rose Farrelly, from the defendant Mark Lawler, and another profile developed from a third man. According to Ms. Reardon, Rose Farrelly and the third man were not a match for the DNA developed from the staining sample and could be excluded. However, the defendant's profile matched the DNA contained in the sample taken from Ms. Farrelly's jumper. The profile developed was estimated to occur in the population at a rate of 1 in 100 million. The expert continued, quote, In each lumograph, the defendant's DNA profile matches that of the semen stain from Rose Farrelly's jumper, end quote. Patty McEntee cross-examined Ms. Reardon closely and put it to her that she had begun her examination of the DNA profiles knowing what result she wanted to get and that she had edited out data that was not consistent with this result. He took issue with the interpretations she had of very specific data points in the DNA profiles that Ms. Reardon was examining. Ms. Reardon denied this and said she had not edited out a specific DNA band in one of the lumographs in order to ensure a match, nor had she concluded that there was a double band at a particular place in another lumograph where Mr. McEntee said there was but a single band. Ms. Reardon's cross-examination continued the following day. Mr. McEntee focused on Ms. Reardon's own qualifications and the level of consensus regarding DNA profile among forensic scientists. Ms. Reardon told the court that she had a higher national diploma in applied biology. She'd begun working for Cellmark in 1987 and had moved to their forensic section a year later in 1988. Amanda Reardon said she was aware of the work produced from the U.S.'s National Research Council, the NRC, in relation to DNA technology and said that while some of this council's findings were widely accepted, others were not. Then McEntee dove into specifics again. He put it to Ms. Reardon that the NRC had examined the issue of what were known as anonymous bands in DNA samples that is, a result that appears on a lumograph as a point of data with three bands rather than the more usual one or two bands. McEntee was arguing that the appearance of this third band indicated that it was possible that the sample from Ms. Farrelly's jumper used to develop this profile had actually contained mixed DNA. Ms. Reardon said that it was possible for a third band to appear in a sample developed from a single source of DNA and that this would be due to a natural change in a person's DNA which resulted in a mutation of a gene. But she had rarely seen such a band. And in fact, Ms. Reardon said it was her opinion that no such third band was present on the lumograph that Mr. McEntee referred to. This was not a mixed DNA sample, she said. It matched the defendant. Two other DNA experts were also heard by the court and all agreed that the DNA profiles developed from the blood sample taken from the defendant matched the DNA which had been found on Rose Farrelly's jumper. On the 43rd day of the trial, Friday the 1st of December, the jury was sent out to begin their deliberations. At that point, this was the longest-running trial in the history of the Irish state. After failing to reach a verdict that evening, they were sent to a hotel for the night. And so, on Saturday, the 2nd of December, after over three hours of deliberation, the jury returned with their verdict just before noon that day. They found Mark Lawler guilty of Rose Farrelly's murder. 
He was also found guilty of sexual assault, grievous bodily harm, and stealing her mother's wedding ring from her right hand. He was also convicted of entering 13 Harold's Cross cottages with intent to steal. Mark Lawler stood impassively while the verdict was read and his mandatory life sentence was handed down. It was noted that he had requested that he be transferred to Arbor Hill in the event of his conviction, and the judge said that he would note this and pass it on to the prison authorities. Mr Justice Gagan thanked the jury for their service and attention and exempted them from jury duty for life. Sister Molly Farrelly wept as the verdict was read out. She had attended every day of the trial. Sentencing on the lesser counts was adjourned in order for probation and other reports to be prepared. Speaking to Stephen Ray after the conclusion of the 44-day trial, one Garda source said that Mark Lawler had been well known to the local Gardee in Kevin Street Station. The source said, quote, He was a very strange person. There was always something about him that didn't add up. He was capable of anything, and we regarded him as a very dangerous person, end quote. It was also reported that Gardee had viewed Mark Hawkins more sympathetically than Lawler and believed that he had been intimidated into accompanying Lawler that night. Essentially, police thought he was a much weaker person than Lawler and was easily influenced or intimidated. On March 27, 1996, the sentencing hearing was held in relation to the other crimes Mark Lawler had committed. Mr Justice Gagan noted that reports prepared for the purposes of sentencing indicated that Mark Lawler had had a troubled background, but the judge went on to say that this was no excuse for the, quote, brazen decision to commit this violent crime, end quote. Inspector Anthony Brisbane took the court through Mark Lawler's criminal record. He had a string of convictions for burglary and assault, beginning in 1987 when Lawler was 14 years old. He'd absconded to England at one point and was extradited back to Ireland in 1991. The following year, Lawler was sentenced to three years for various offences, which he had committed in 1989. But then, on the 28th of January, 1993, Lawler had been released on bail, pending a review of his sentence. And so it was that Lawler had actually been on bail at the time that Rose Farrelly was murdered. He'd only been out for two weeks. Mark Lawler's defence counsel, Paddy McEntee, told Mr Justice Gagan that his client had both an alcohol and drug addiction. Mr McEntee continued that there was no evidence of Lawler having a psychiatric illness, but he was bordering on being, quote, mildly mentally handicapped. McEntee concluded, quote, The real tragedy is that when he came into the prison system, there was nowhere he could be taken, and he was just put back on the streets, end quote. Mr Justice Gagan seemingly agreed with this sentiment and said perhaps if there had been a suitable place to detain Lawler after he committed his earlier crimes, Ms Farrelly might still be alive. Then, in what might strike a reasonable person as a backwards decision, Mark Lawler was sentenced to a further nine years for theft of the ring and grievous bodily harm, and just five years for his sexual assault upon Rose Farrelly he got a further 21 months for the burglaries committed that night. These sentences were to run concurrently. Lawler appealed his conviction, but this was rejected by the Court of Criminal Appeal in February of 2001. Since the investigation into Rose Farrelly's murder and the trial of Mark Lawler, DNA evidence has of course become a vital element 
not only in prosecutions but in identifying suspects and perpetrators. In 1996, a DNA dragnet successfully identified the murderer of Marilyn Wrynn, who eventually pled guilty to his unplanned and opportunistic rape and killing. And 23 years after her death, John Creer was convicted of the murder of Phyllis Murphy. A DNA database finally became operational in Ireland in 2015, though there are strict limitations on what is stored on the database and how it is used. Though so-called random acts of violence against women in Ireland are rare, a stranger is responsible in about 10% of cases where a woman is murdered, these brazen cases are of course much harder to solve and to prove. And the use of DNA is vital. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Kathy Wilson, Cloda Hines, Christina Ransom, Owen Griffin, Isabel, Magpie, Jasmine Storen and Andine Bonzer. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going. And along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Also thanks to our sponsors for this week, Manscaped, Stitch Fix, Noom and June's Journey. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, and additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. of us as well as of as well as of as well as well as of as well as of expix of asphyxiate as well as of as well as of asphyxiation the woman had also suffered a ruptured liver testing